Hello, this is Zara Ahmed, the presentation editor at CM Life with Central Headlines. Today we're going to be speaking to Latin American history professor Brad Idle on the U.S. and Cuba embargo and the agreement that we have going on right now. So Brad, um, I'm not sure if you're aware of it or not, but we had a CMU student travel to Cuba um, this summer studying abroad. And I was wondering, you mentioned earlier, it's legal for anyone to go to Cuba, technically? Uh, there are still some travel restrictions. You still need to have, in some ways, a reason to legally go to Cuba. Uh, travel to Cuba has been sort of tacitly accepted by the U.S. government for a long time, though. Uh, you could always go to Mexico, uh, ask them not to stamp your pas- passport, fly to Cuba from there, uh, and ask them again not to stamp your passport. And usually both sides would comply. Uh, you couldn't do things like use your credit card there. Uh, you had to basically traffic in cash. Uh, and the Mexican government actually reported those people to the U.S. government. Uh, but to my knowledge, besides being put on a list and maybe being watched a little bit more carefully, there weren't any real consequences for doing that. Yeah, that's interesting. I actually remember in middle school, I had a couple of Cuban friends that would travel to Cuba regularly. Um, So let's do a little bit of an overview. So what is the U.S. and Cuba agreement that's going on right now that is allowing us to travel legally? Okay. Uh, Well, just to give you a little bit of background as to what's going on, why why this is happening, why a rapprochement, why a normalization of relations. Uh, This is something Obama's been interested in for a long time. Uh, after the midterm elections of his second term, he didn't really have to fe- fear any electoral backlash from normalizing relations with Cuba. Uh, and because actually a lot of uh, opinion polls show that Americans favor normalizing relations with Cuba, uh, he doesn't really have to worry about that anyways in terms of electoral fallout. Uh, So it was natural that Obama would move in this direction uh, after the midterms of his second term. On the other hand, Cuba's economy is uh, not able to produce everything it needs to survive. uh, And its main sponsor, Venezuela, is in chaos right now. Uh, We don't know exactly quantitatively how much aid uh, Cuba gets from Venezuela. Uh, because it's difficult to know with Cuba. Uh, Raul Castro has tried to implement partial liberalization, uh, some capitalistic type uh, things, more private property. Uh, Normalization for Cuba makes sense because it needs to replace the economic gain, economic assistance that it gets from Venezuela somewhere. Uh, And so both countries have sort of reasons to want to increase in engagement. Uh, The current deal uh, came about after a uh, prisoner exchange between the two countries uh, in 2015, uh, actually encouraged by the Pope uh, after 18 months of secret talks, uh, actually December 17th, 2014. Uh, 
they decided to swap prisoners. The U.S. was holding some Cuban intelligence agents. Cuba was holding uh, some U.S. Uh, citizens. Uh, they swapped prisoners. That opened the way for uh, more normalization. Obama met with Raul Castro. Uh, he traveled to Cuba. He promised to and has opened up uh, the U.S. Embassy in Cuba. Uh, Cuba is has opened an embassy in the United States, though the embargo remains. All right, so why have the U.S. and Cuba had such a hostile relationship? It's kind of a long history. Uh, the United States saw itself, continues to see itself, as a champion of democracy uh, in the developing world. Uh, and when Cuba, when Cuba fell to Fidel Castro uh, in 1959, uh, he had some communist leaning. Certainly his brother Raul was a strong communist. Certainly his uh, compatriot Che Guevara was very much in the communist camp. Castro... Uh, the United States believed at first, uh, Fidel, that they could work with him, but he traveled to the United States in 59, for example, and was on Meet the Press and was very charming and was actually very popular. Uh, but as he sort of to, started to implement reforms that hurt U.S. business interests in the country, the U.S. reacted by issuing various economic sanctions, and it went back and forth until eventually diplomatic relations were cut off. Uh, then uh, you have this failed invasion attempt with the Bay of Pigs invasion uh, in 61. Uh, it's a plan that the United States had used to success in Guatemala earlier in the 50s. Uh, they tried to do it basically again uh, in Cuba. Uh, failed. Che Guevara was in Guatemala when it happened. He he and Fidel Castro took steps to make sure that the same thing couldn't happen to them in Cuba. It failed spectacularly. It was embarrassing for the United States. Uh, after that, the U.S. turned primarily to a strategy of isolating Cuba both economically and politically. Mm. Uh, and then sort of you would think that and then there's the Cuban Missile Crisis. Uh, the U.S. had back-channel negotiations with Cuba during the Missile Crisis, though it was confusing because it went through Brazil, and we tried to get them a message that said, you know, if you would just abandon the Soviet Union, we'd probably just leave you alone and we'd be okay with you being down there and communist. But we told Brazil that they couldn't tell Cuba that that message was from us that, you know, just just to suggest to Cuba that that would be, and eventually it got worked out between uh, the Soviet Union and the United States, uh, and the Soviet Union withdrew their missiles in exchange for the United States withdrawing some missiles from Turkey. Uh, after the Cold War, uh, there was an opportunity for reproachment because there's no longer sort of the geopolitical struggle between capitalism and communism. Mm -hmm. It doesn't happen. Uh, these things die hard. In 1992, because of sort of a commitment to democracy and a strong Cuban exile community that opposes Fidel Castro, uh, 
the U.S. Congress passed further sanctions against Cuba, making it so that we would only normalize relations and end the embargo uh, once democracy was restored to Cuba. Uh, and then in 1996, Cuba shot down a plane uh, that was part of an operation to find people trying to flee the island uh, and rescue them and bring them to the United States. The plane had flown into Cuban airspace and the Cuban government had shot it down. Uh, in response to that in 1996, uh, the U.S. passes even more stringent uh, legislation against Cuba, uh, making it so uh, the embargo is dependent on both human rights issues and primarily whether or not the Castros are in power. So the U.S. won't end the embargo uh, until the Castros are no longer part of uh, the Cuban government. Mm -hmm. uh, and then since then, it's just sort of recalcitrance in, in Congress, people who don't want to uh, have a reproachment or normalization of relations with Cuba, primarily because of human rights issues. Uh, the regime in Cuba arrested something like, well, more than 8,600 people for political reasons in 2015. Uh, so there are legitimate human rights concerns. Uh, it's a difference in opinion uh, between, uh, it's a difference in opinion between groups as to how best to mitigate those concerns. Obama believes that by engaging with Cuba and getting them to open up more mm -hmm. economically. Eventually, that will lead to more human rights uh, advancements in the country. Uh, others on both sides of the aisle, not just Republicans, believe that we must continue to isolate Cuba until they improve their human rights record. Mm -hmm. All right, so what does it uh, mean to embargo a country? So why does the U.S. embargo Cuba, and what were the repercussions of embargoing Cuba? Uh, to embargo a country, though, the U.S. doesn't have sort of a perfect embargo on Cuba. Uh, various presidents, including George Bush, have weakened some of the embargo parts, uh, but it means to cut off trade with them. Okay. Uh, the Cuban government estimates, estimates that in the more than 50 years of stringent trade restrictions that the U.S. has had with Cuba, it's amounted to a loss of $1.126 trillion wow, for their economy. Wow, a big number. So it has had a massive sort of effect on, on the Cuban economy. Absolutely. <clears throat> so the U.S. embargo failed to topple Castro, which seems to have been the plan, right? Get the Castros out of power so they could introduce democracy. So why did the U.S. keep it going if it failed? Was it just to hold it over and hope that they start to agree or become more lenient with the U.S.? Or... With all economic sanctions, you hope that over a period of time, the consequences become worse and worse as a country's economy declines. Right. And certainly now that Venezuela is in chaos uh, after the fall of Chavez. Uh, yeah, so what's going on in Venezuela? Why is it in fall? I think we need some background for that one. Well, Hugo Chavez, a very charismatic leftist leader, mm -hmm. uh, had for a long time controlled the politics in Venezuela. 
and shifted the country, if not towards outright socialism, towards a more social democratic state. Uh, policies that have broadly failed now and mm -hmm. were starting to fail while he was in power. Okay. Uh, he held power primarily through the force of his personality uh, and the force of the army. Right. Uh, <laughs> it helps. <laughs> but in the absence of Chavez, uh, there wasn't a strong charismatic leader to step in and fill that role. Oh, no. Uh, and the country has been sort of, the reforms that he have made have, has bankrupted Venezuela, basically. It's impossible to get sort of even the daily necessities of life there. Uh, there are massive shortages. Uh, there are massive power shortages. Uh, it's not uncommon for uh hospitals even to go without power for days at a time wow. uh, the situation isn't good in Venezuela no. right now uh, and it doesn't leave Venezuela in a good position to help Cuba right they don't have any resources to help right uh, Chavez had long been a supporter of the Castros okay just similar ideological bents got it so he kept the embargo going for? Primarily human rights reasons. All right. Uh, the Castros in Cuba have, it is not an exaggeration to say that they have been, that their human rights record is awful. Uh, initially, when they took power, uh, there were purges uh, where they eliminated political enemies. Uh, when... As they consolidated power, they created work camps for political dissidents. Uh, and political and dissidents includes things like homosexuals oh, wow. uh, sent to work camps. Uh, they have broadly exiled uh, a lot of their political opponents, which is why the Cuban population in the United States is generally very conservative, uh, because they oppose Castro's leftist uh, policies. Uh, and the problems still exist. Uh, Cuba continues to repress individuals and groups who criticize the government or call for basic human rights. They detain people. They create travel restrictions for people. It's not uncommon for the police force to just beat political dissidents, and then they force people into exile. So Fidel, when did Fidel Castro die? He's alive. Alive. Okay, so there you go. I learned something there. Um, so Fidel, Fidel is alive. So Raul he, is in charge. Yeah, why is Raul in charge then? Uh, Raul is, by all accounts, more with it. What does that mean? <laughs> uh, Fidel, the state of Fidel's health is in question. He's alive, but he's not well. And he's so no not one been well for a while. Has he been out in public at all? Has he has made some him? public okay. appearances uh, recently, but he has mostly taken a backseat to his brother Raul, okay. uh, who has implemented a series of reforms in the Cuban economy uh, that Fidel, that Castro, Fidel, doesn't like uh, by all reports, but okay. Raul's in charge, so. All right, so why, well, Fidel Castro is considered a villain by many people, but what exactly did he do? Um, we're talking a lot about human rights issues. What were some of, what were some things that he did that are considerably heinous? 
Well, as I said before, the creation of work camps for political dissidents, uh, including homosexuals, there was a... <laughs> Excuse me. Is there a cough button? <laughs> there was a... Uh, period initially after taking power where he purged political enemies from uh, the country, uh, both through uh, sham court trials, which resulted in sentencing of death. He's really leveled uh, Cuba's economy. There's one class. There's no upper class. There's no lower class. I think you could say, argue legitimately, that Cuba's worst off person is probably better off than the worst off person in the United States. But to get rid of the upper class, there was a lot of forced exile. There was murder. There was, okay. uh, and it continues. A lot of corruption. Right. <clears throat> so does does this agreement mean that Cuba will become a freedom loving democracy now, or is that just a hope of America? I think it's a hope. Mm -hmm. uh, we tend to think of ourselves as champions of democracy. Uh, the United States would like to see Cuba have a more open democracy. Uh, Raul has said that he will step down from power in 2018, uh, at which point it would be safe to assume that Fidel Castro would also not be a factor in the political scene, so the Castros would be out of politics in 2018 if Raul follows through on that. Uh, there's an opportunity there uh, for democracy, if that's the way that Cuba chooses to go. Uh, it's the way, certainly, that the United States would like it to go. Uh, it's hard to say. Mm -hmm. uh, there are elements in the Cuban political elite that agree with Raul and want more liberalization, more normalization, and there are elements that agree with Fidel and want sort of a more strict adherence to communism. communist principles. That's interesting. Um, in the story, Bella, who, Bella Barclow, who actually went to Cuba, she talked about the Cuban people being very laid back and welcoming to her. Um, she was expecting them to be a little hostile because of the U.S. and Cuba relations, but she said they were more willing to get to know her and who she, who she is and where she came from rather than the country that represented her. Um, how, how do you think the Cuban people feel about this agreement going on? I'll tell you that 97%, uh, approximately 97% of the Cuban population thinks that Cuba should normalize relations with the United States. Uh, the general population is very much in favor. So it seems like the country as a whole is leaning toward democracy, but it's up to 2018, really, to see how everything plays out? Uh, possible. Uh, it's hard to know what will happen uh, in 2018, uh, but there is a real chance for legitimate political reform to go along with sort of these minor economic reforms that uh, Raul has been pushing. Mm -hmm. What's So if the Castros do um, leave power in 2018, do you think that they're going to have a hand in who gets power? It's hard to believe that they would not. Right. Uh, it would be an issue uh, if they choose to do elections. It would certainly be an issue for interna international election monitors. 
mm-hmm. whether to decide if those elections were free and fair. But it's hard to believe that they wouldn't in some way try to influence who held power after them. Mm-hmm. So what happens now in terms of the U.S. and Cuba? Well, uh, President Obama, uh, Hillary Clinton, and actually Donald Trump uh, all support normalization of relations with Cuba. Mm-hmm. Uh, Donald Trump feels that the U.S. should have gotten a better deal in better whatever deal. vague sense that, yeah, what that, that means. Mean? <laughs> uh, in the prisoner exchange, oh, okay. they should have somehow gotten a better deal. Uh, in sort of his critique of all policies. Uh, But all presidential candidates, well, the two major presidential candidates and the current president favor rapprochement with Cuba. Uh, However, the embargo itself is an economic issue and Congress controls that. Mm -hmm. Uh, So they can do small things uh, as uh, President Obama has done made small changes uh, weakening the embargo. Uh, Obama has made travelers uh, to the U.S., made it possible for them to use U.S. credit and debit cards in Cuba. Uh, He's made it possible for U.S. insurance companies to cover health, life, and travel insurance for individuals visiting Cuba. Uh, He's made it, he's encouraged banks to work with people traveling to Cuba. U.S. companies are able to invest in some small private businesses in Cuba, uh, and we are allowed to ship building materials to Cuba as well as agricultural products. Okay. Uh, and our telecommunications industry, cell phones, that sort of thing, actually have a very strong presence in Cuba as well. Uh, so going forward the president can only do those sort of things within their executive power to carry out foreign policy uh the embargo itself as a economic issue continues to fall to congress uh and it doesn't look like there are prospects for that being lifted anytime soon uh marco rubio uh the son of cuban exiles uh, is very opposed to any sort of normalization with cuba Uh, is Ted Cruz, uh, whose father was exiled from Cuba to Canada, uh, is also very opposed to normalization. And there are Democrats who are also opposed to any sort of lifting of the embargo until the Castros are gone, until the human rights record improves, uh, until there's real progress shown. And they believe that by engaging with Cuba now, we're not really punishing them or affecting their actions because they can still violate human rights and get the benefits of these sort of minor changes to mm-hmm. our trading relationship and our normalization of diplomatic relations. Well, what do you think about it? Do you think that um, providing these little things that the president has provided, a little bit of lifting of the restrictions, do you think that's going to empower the relationship between the U.S. and Cuba? Or do you think that we have to keep um, pushing through the embargo and making sure that they, that the Castros are out of power before we lift any restrictions from the embargo itself. I think it makes sense to end the embargo. Uh, 
the economic sanctions imposed by the United States also hurt the Cuban people as much. Well, maybe not as much because they're not being directly arrested by the economic sanctions of the United States and beaten. But they do affect the quality of life of the Cuban people. Mm -hmm. Uh, They do uh, create a situation where the nation, Cuba, is much poorer uh, than it would need to be. Uh, It's a difficult issue, though, uh, because there is the problem of human rights abuses. Uh, There is the historical animosity between the two countries. Uh, But in the absence of sort of the Cold War pressures, I think that it may be time to try to lift the embargo. The, The majority of the American people favor lifting the embargo. Actually, the majority of Cuban Americans now favor lifting the embargo and normalizing relations. Uh, it's less politically risky to do so. The embargo is less relevant in the post-Cold War world. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's been universally condemned uh, by the rest of the world. Uh, in 2000, oh, let's see. Well, the UN uh, almost annually uh, passes a resolution condemning the U.S. embargo of Cuba. Uh, And in 2013, the UN General Assembly approved such a resolution again for the 22nd consecutive (laughs) year, with 188 member countries backing the resolution and only two opposing it, the United States and Israel. Okay. (laughs) So it's not a popular stance. It hurts us abroad. It hurts our influence abroad. It hurts our influence in Latin America, where our embargo of Cuba is particularly unpopular. Mm -hmm. Uh, We would probably be better off, and the Cuban people would probably be better off in the long run if the embargo were to end. All right. Um, Do you have anything else to add? No. Uh, That's it if... All right. Well, thank you so much for sitting in with us today, Brad. Um, This has been Central Headlines, and enjoy your day. Thank you. Take History 362 Latin American Revolutions this spring semester to learn more about Fidel Castro and the Cuban Revolution. Professor Idle will be offering Latin American Revolutions this spring. This course will primarily focus on the Cuban Revolution and the guerrilla-style revolutions it inspired throughout Central America. Learn about Nicaraguan Revolution, learn about Salvadorian Civil War, learn about the Guatemalan Civil War, and much more. Take History 362 with Professor Idol this spring and gain better understanding of the dynamics of 20th century Latin American politics, economic development, and social change through the process of violent revolution.